Welcome to Free Associations, the public health journal club podcast for anyone who's ever listened to a news story about a medical breakthrough only to have it contradicted a week later or wondered just how good those studies really are and wants to know more about how to figure it out for themselves. I'm Matt Fox, professor of epidemiology and global health at Boston University and an HIV researcher and an epidemiologist by training, so just to let you know, I have no medical degree. Before we get started, I do want to do a quick plug for the Population Health Exchange, Boston University School of Public Health resource hub for lifelong learning. You can find it at www.populationhealthexchange.org, and that's where you can find this podcast, as well as many other population health learning programs and tools, so go check it out. Today, in the first part of the podcast, we're going to be talking about a study that is making a lot of headlines. You may have heard about it. It's a study that asks the question of whether kids who have regular routines when really young are less likely to be obese at age 11. Then in the second part of the podcast, we'll get into the issue of how to critically read a journal article. So for those of you who want to learn more about how we do it, we'll give you our, our tips and tricks. And then in the third segment, our amazing and amusing segment, we'll talk about uh, some studies and websites or other mediums that we've come across recently that made us laugh out loud or wonder how this study ever got funded in the first place and maybe something that really amazed us. And then we'll ask how they did it. We won't always give answers, but we'll ask. We'll ask. We're much better at asking questions than answering them. I think so. Now, before we get into our first segment, let me introduce you to my two partners in this endeavor. I'm joined in this quest first by Dr. Chris Gill. Chris, can you introduce yourself? Hey, good morning, Matt. Yeah, hi, Chris Gill here. Um, so I'm an infectious disease doctor by training, and I'm an associate professor here at the School of Public Health in the Department of Global Health. And I, uh, I guess I'm a, sort of an HIV researcher, uh, and sort I also of. study... Um, Bacteria that live in the respiratory tract. Good times. Yeah. Good times. Yeah. Hello. And we've got Dr. Don Thea. Don? I'm just like Chris. I'm an infectious disease doctor. I'm also in the, on the faculty of the Department of Global Health, where I'm a professor. And I've been doing field research, most, mostly in the area of HIV and pneumonia, for um, just about my entire career. All right. So let's move into the first segment of our... Podcast. So we're going to be talking about a new study using, that came using data from the United Kingdom by Sarah Anderson and her colleagues at The Ohio State University. And I like to say The Ohio State University, so I sound like a, I'm a professional football player on Monday Night Football. <laughs> so from The Ohio State University, published in the International Journal of Obesity on the relationship between regular routines for three-year-olds, for example, regular bedtimes, regular mealtimes, regular television watching, or less of it, and the relationship between that and obesity in those same kids at age 11. So the title of the study, if you want to follow along at home, is Self-Regulation and Household Routines at Age 3 and Obesity at Age 11, Longitudinal Analysis of the UK Millennium Cohort Study. And uh, it's, a, it's an early release publication. I have not yet looked, uh, I haven't looked again online, but uh, early release meaning it has not yet come out in a fully print formatted version but has got a lot of media attention. So we'll dive into the details of the study, break it down, and try and see if we can end by figuring out what we think of the results. Before we get started, I want to lay down uh, the ground rules that we've all agreed to. So uh, we are going to be critical of the studies that we talk about here on the podcast, but let's say right up front that there is no such thing as a perfect study. All studies are prone to bias, even randomized trials, as those of us who are sitting here at this table very well know. Oh, yes, we do. We've made a few mistakes <laughs> ourselves. Um, and because there's no perfect study, all, sub uh, all studies are subject to critiques. And so our idea here is not to simply poke holes in studies, but rather we want to be thinking critically about how we consume medical and public health literature and give some insight into how we make decisions about what to believe and what to be skeptical about. So that's the idea of the podcast for those who are, are trying to learn more about how to do this or just learn what these studies are about. And so to do that, we picked some topics that uh, deal with studies that are hot in the news. So not necessarily topics, in fact, intentionally probably not topics that we're experts in because I don't know about you, Don and Chris, but um, I'm not I, an expert in anything. I, I've, we all know that. That's why we asked you here. Uh, I get friends and family members who ask me all the time about the latest a uh, story they've heard on NPR and want to know whether or not it was a good study. And I know nothing about it because I have no time to read anything 
beyond <laughs> what is in my narrow field of HIV epidemiology. Do, do you have a stack of journals on your on your desk that oh, you I also don't, don't read? I don't. I don't even stack them anymore. You just I throw just, them away right away. I just save stuff. Yep. I just you know print them out and put them directly into the recycling bin. Smart. Yep. Uh, and so the 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 idea here is that we want to be dealing with topics that we are not necessarily experts in, so that we can give you a sense for how we go about this when we pick up a study on a, a topic that we don't have the expertise on. Uh, and the last ground rule that I remembered last minute is we do need to uh, remind ourselves that you, the listener, doesn't necessarily have the article in front of us, and so we will do our best to describe what it is we're talking about and uh, make this more interesting. So to get us into this study, uh, before we get into the specifics, let me start by giving you some of the headlines that have been reported on this study. So I'll give you four of them. So the first one says, uh, was from U.S. News & World Report that says, Set family routines cut down on obesity study finds. NPR says, eat, sleep, repeat, how kids' daily routines can help prevent obesity. The Daily Mail's headline was, regular bedtimes make children less likely to be obese as adults. Scientists find link between family structure and behavior that affects possibility of gaining weight. And the Telegraph says, regular bedtimes stop children from becoming overweight, study finds. Which is, uh, I highlighted in bold, or I guess I bolded, uh, in each of those, uh, words like cut down on, prevent, make, stop, because those are some pretty strong terms that suggest that at least the uh, people writing these articles believe these are causal links between the two, and we'll actually try and figure out what we think about them. Can I ask you a question? You can. Is an 11-year-old technically considered to be an adult these days? Uh, in the eyes of whom? The, uh, the UK Daily Mail, which has regular bedtimes make children less likely to be, ob be obese as adults. Uh, if I'm jumping ahead here, you, were, were the subjects who were studied actually 11 years old? They were 11. That is um, an interesting definition of adult. Yeah, well, Let's just start you know, with our critiques right there. There you go. Well, then, well, we're, <laughs> we'll, Sorry about we'll, that. We'll try and figure that out. No. Yeah, they're likely prepubescent. Yeah. Well, they might be. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, Chris, why don't you uh, start us off by giving us a, a summary of what this, this study was about, what they did, and what they found, and why okay. they did it. Okay, so I'm, I'm just going to say that I was just, uh, I just flew in from Phoenix, and my arms were... Well done. No, no, okay, you won't <laughs> say that. But um, I did just uh, read the, the, uh, the paper while I was flying back from Phoenix. I'm um, impressed you read it. Uh, no, I felt, I felt I should before we started talking about it. Um, so this is, a, this is a, a, what, it, what we call in epidemiology parlance a, a longitudinal cohort study. Uh, meaning that they, they enrolled a whole bunch of people. The study is actually technically called the UK Millennium Cohort Study. Um, and they called it that uh, because they enrolled a, a group of about 20,000 families who had a baby between 2000 and 2002, hence the millennium thing. Mm -hmm. And then they followed them over time, measuring all sorts of stuff to kind of gather data, and uh, which would then allow them to analyze data and ask different questions and perhaps even answer them, which would... Be even better. Not a bad idea. Now, an interesting thing about this cohort that the the study that that we are studying today is a subset of that full cohort, which is about twenty thousand people. And here we're looking at around ten thousand kids who came out of that cohort. And a, an interesting feature of this is that the the cohort is not entirely representative of the United Kingdom, but these these are these are families who are, I guess, to put it mildly, a little bit under stress. They're 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 families who are almost entirely receiving government assistance. So this would be sort of the um, uh, more of the uh, socially dis uh, disadvantaged. Uh, mm -hmm. um, no, when you say just, just uh, when you say that, are you sure in the UK that's necessarily true? I mean, well, receiving assistance in the sense of they receive the child grant, but uh, I think in the UK a child grant goes to just about everyone. Oh, is that possible? Yeah. Now oh, they did. Okay. You are right that they did oversample um, those who were who were in lower socioeconomic conditions because they specifically wanted to make sure they didn't essentially underrepresent those kids, but. So this is a very major difference between us and the United States. Uh, the very United major difference. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So, um, in this uh, in this uh, study, what they wanted to look at was this this link between bedtime routines and other household routines, and whether that led to a a set of behaviors that could be measured in a survey called emotional self regulation. Um, and this is sort of like a, a way of sort of looking at a child and seeing are is the child able to resolve frustrations in, a, in an age-appropriate way? Can they kind of like calm themselves down or are they more likely to be, you know, difficult sort of fussy, you know, temper tantrum prone children? And, the, um, and so having defined this, this sort of 
personality trait, if you will, at the age of three. They then looked way down the road at the, these same kids when they became 11 and tracked to see how many of them ended up becoming obese based on some standard definitions in epidemiology. But they also looked at cognitive um, right. cognitive uh, effects. They also looked at cognitive uh, self-regulation. So there were, there were two scales, but the, the one that they're most interested on here, yeah. and we, we will mention that there was this other scale, except that it, they didn't find anything. So we can, we can not talk about that for the rest because it didn't predict anything. And so it did not make its way to this paper. Right, but they have an I think they have an explanation for that. But the, right, I, the different I, brain, different parts of the brain, prefrontal cortex, versus the limbic system. I'd be curious to know how you'd score on the emotional... I am quite sure after this morning that not so well. So so these children who uh, had uh, more challenged emotional self-regulation were somewhat more likely to be obese. Is that a a fair summary? Well, I I mean, I think they they looked at both uh, the scales, but they were more Ah, focused on the routines. And the routines, right. So... You know, we're we're going to talk a little bit uh, about how we approach reading a, a a journal article, and I'm going to I'm going to jump ahead in here because I think that, that way of thinking about a paper is really essential here because what the authors are are arguing is for a a, a sort of a causal model. Meaning that, like, if this happens, then this happens, and then this happens. Meaning that each of these things kind of in- interact in a chain of events that lead to something down the road, and that's really the whole crux of this. And I think where we're gonna go that's where we're gonna... is whether we think that their causal model makes sense, right. or whether it could be a little more complicated than we that. We will, we will, we will get into all of that. And so their implicit causal model was that if the if the parents you know, set up a set of routines so that the kids go to bed at a regular time and don't watch too much TV and have meal times that are at a regular time every day, that that will lead to better emotional self-regulation. That was certainly the hypothesis that they were the testing hypothesis. going right. in. And then that all of that sort of like, you know, churned together in the, the, the you know, the, the slushy, you know, uh, what is it, smoothies? Breakfast like the fruit smoothie of epidemiologic uh, good parenting. Uh, ends up as a child who is less likely to be obese 11 years. No, at, at uh, eight 11. years later. Eight yeah. years later, right. That's, years the, that's the, the nuts and bolts of this. Yep. And then they did some statistics. And they did some, <laughs> as, as happens in that, most medical. You have to stick statistics in. It's absolutely necessary. And they calculated people. We, yeah. at, at some point, we will do a show on whether or not you actually have to put statistics in, but we'll come back to that. Okay. They have a role. There you go. So, Beautiful. Appreciate that introduction, uh, Don. Let's start with you. So, give us your give us your take on this. Give us the highs and lows. The what do you thought what you thought was was good and bad and and yeah, you know um, there were there were aspects of this that I liked. I uh, I like reading papers where I learn something new. Um, I I didn't know about uh, emotional self regulation. I didn't know about cognitive self regulation. Doesn't um, sense. Yeah, I mean, I it was just it was a measure that I, I really hadn't been familiar with. So it was something that um, I thought was interesting. And um, the authors cite a fair amount of background information in terms of yeah. um, work that had been done previously to um, really allude to this association that Chris, Chris just talked about. And I think that it was trying to build on the prior work. And it's always good to uh, try to build on, on work that has preceded it. And the authors, I think, um, feel good about the fact that their conclusions were consistent with the conclusions that were found previously, which is always a good thing, and you know, it's always the, nice to be consistent. No, I would say they're, they're, not all their findings were consistent with what they thought they were going to find Correct. when they went into it. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, I had a little bit of difficulty in my mind, as Chris was talking about, in, in believing the association of something that happened at such a, uh, a time difference that there would be one aspect of um, characteristics that they measured that existed when the child was three years old would translate to something that they observed when the child was 11 years old, because there's a lot of stuff that happens in in the rearing of a child between age three and age 11. So I think that that was something that I felt a little bit uncomfortable with. I think think the fact that they um, were really relying on recall um, by the mothers, 98% 98% of the respondents were mothers, um, in terms of what their routines were in the household. And um, I think that that's always um, fraught with a little bit of inaccuracy. And that, that sort of made me a, a little bit uncomfortable. Um, 
I also thought that um, that the scales that they provided. So what, what they did is they asked the mothers, um, "Do you in your household um, are your children um, seeing less than one hour of video computer time? I think it was one to two hours, and then three hours or above, or some, something like that." But they broke it down to four scales. Yep. And I think that that sort of stacks the deck to a certain extent because I think that people would. F- Feel as if there are socially desirable responses, and you're you're you know you're sort of you're sort of leading the witness as it were as it were. I would have preferred that that question were asked in a more open-ended way. How many hours of TV and video does your child watch on a typical on a typical um, on a typical day? Um, so that that made me a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah. So I, I would there there is certainly research out there that suggests that the way that you ask the question. Uh, can determine the important. way that people answer the question. So that if you if you categorize things in such a way that if you say, you know, does, does your child watch, or how much ch- TV does your child watch, and the lowest category is, say, you know, 15 minutes a week, uh, that immediately sets people up to be saying, okay, 15 minutes a week is a possibility. Mm. Right. Uh, so I want to be I want to be low down here. So I may I'm going to choose the second category, even though I might be in the third category. Yeah. Uh, the question though becomes. And 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 we haven't we haven't really said exactly what the findings are here, so I, we'll come back to that in just a second. But what's the likely impact of asking a question in that way? In other words, we know that if we ask questions certain ways, we're going to get misleading. We're going to get answers that do not necessarily correspond to the truth. But does that necessarily mean that we can't then correlate that measure with some outcome at a later point in time? And generally, I think what happens is when Outcomes like that, or uh, when when questions like that are asked in a way such that you get misleading, you, you get inaccurate information, but it's not related to the outcome. We generally bias towards less of an effect. So maybe there's a you know a, a strong correlation, and we observe uh, a moderate correlation. Uh, it's more when you know we see things that are are uh, we ask questions that are both. Uh, Mis, mis, uh, misrecorded kind of leading questions leading questions but that are also leading in a way that it's different depending on whether or not you got the outcome that we tend to see really funky stuff going on right because surely the the parents are, are are aware that a lot of these these uh, these, these are relationships are going to be are going to be looked at yeah so socially desirable but is there a reason to believe that you would answer the question differently based on whether or not your child 11 years later is obese which you may have a, a sense for something that's going to happen because which is tricky because may run it's, the 11, family. it's eight years later, and so they wouldn't have known that the child was obese yet when they asked the question. Exactly. So, so it may be that what's really going on here is you have some people who are miscoded because of the way that the question is asked, but but the the expected direction of that bias is such that it it, it biases towards not being able to see an effect uh, when in fact in some cases they saw an effect. I think we should go back to the the, the actual effect. So. What what actually did they find here? And and maybe we could look at look at these uh, these routines that they describe at the beginning because I thought that some of them were really kind of remarkable. Yeah. Uh, so start off with start off with the routines, and then we'll talk about what they found. Well, I mean, the thing that sort of leaps out at me uh, up front is the is the is the television exposure. So these are, remember these are, these are kids who are three years old, and um, um, you know the uh, se- about seventy eight percent of them are reported at the age of three as, as watching an hour or more of TV every single day. Mm-hmm. On average, yep. I and mean, it's like remarkable. It's a lot of TV for a three-year-old to be watching. Uh, I was sort of like, huh, that's interesting. Seems, seems like a bit less than I watched at three. But you know, <laughs> Maybe but TV so. was better back then. <laughs> well, obviously. <laughs> yeah. On the, on the other hand, most of them seem to have pretty regular bedtimes. As about eighty percent of them are reported by their parents as having regular bedtimes. But this goes right back to your social desirability because this is like parents right. know this is the right answer. Yep. Do you put your kids to bed at a regular time every day? Wagging your fingers, you're yep. asking the question. They're like, "Oh, yes, I do. Of Thank, course, of course I, I do. do. Do you smoke around your baby with asthma? No, no, never, no, never. Right? I mean, right. it's sort of the same kind of right. I mean, it's like uh, not to sort of go way off off topic here, but you know, there are all these sort of sexual behavior surveys where they ask like the number of partners you have, and the men always say, "Oh." Lifetime partners is 40, and the women all say lifetime partners is 10, and you know that on average it should be about the same. You know? You start to match it up, and you wonder who they have sex with. Mathematically, it should be equivalent. Right. So somebody's lying, and probably they're both lying. You know? I mean, it's sort of where does the bias lie? Yeah. Right. But I I do think, I do want to make the point, and I think this is really important, is that that everything that we measure, 
we measure with error. We, we, we right. get it wrong to some degree. But the and question so is whether that error is biased in one direction is, or another. Yeah. And also how much does it matter? And yeah. how much right. is what matters. And, and in here, which direction is it going to point us? Yeah. And here I think we have a case where at least for this particular set of variables, the exposures, meaning by exposures I mean the things that we are trying to figure out if they are causes of obesity, uh, tend to bias towards, towards no effect. You know, there's lots of exceptions to that, but they tend to bias towards not observing an effect if there truly is one, which you know, people tend to use as a fallback for a way to say, aha, we found something, so you may be concerned about the way we measured this. Don't worry about it because, in fact, it was probably even a bigger effect, which I think is a, uh, a big problem in general, and at some point we can do a whole, whole segment on that. But let's get to what they actually found because we haven't actually sort of said it. Well, can we, can we skip to table four, which is, the, I think, where they get exciting? I don't think the people listening have table four in front of them. Okay, well, we'll describe it then. Okay, paint us a picture of table four. And in fact, table five, I think, is actually the one that has the, uh, the, 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 so final, the, the final, final, final. That's a word picture, not words out. Okay, yeah. so remember, we're talking about a causal model here. So um, if you sort of like see this is a, you know, this happens leading to this, leading to that. These tables are sort of organized in the same logic. And so here we're at this point where we're looking at the association between these sort of ch these parenting behaviors and the three parenting behaviors they looked at were regular bedtime, regular meal times, and the amount of TV the kids watched. And then what they're they're first looking at is does do those three behaviors relate to this thing called emotional self-regulation? And the answer was or cognitive self-regulation. Cognitive self-regulation. You really we'll like that cognitive self-regulation? <laughs> but we're going to cut it. to the chase and just acknowledge that they found zip, nada, zilch on the cognitive self-regulation, so prefrontal so, cortex. So I should bring it up again. Talking to you today. <laughs> so limbic system. We're all about the limbic system and the emotional I, score here. I, I tend to agree with you. I think if you look at the uh, regular meal times, they they. They would probably say that there is some relationship, but I, I would agree with you. There's oh, because the, the P's are trending towards positive. Yeah. They're, 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 well, no, they're significant. Can we jump ahead to why you hate P-values? No, no, it's no, coming. No. That, I mean, next, we need about next time. four hours of therapy and an entire <laughs> podcast for me to get into my hatred of P-values, but we'll... we'll All right, so, so on my this... My therapist and I are working on it, okay? In, in, this, in this emotional self-regulation thing, we, they, the way they did it is they, they ask a series of questions each of which has kind of like a scaled answer. And then there are, I think there are, you know, like four or five questions in this. I don't remember exactly. But then they take the, the answers and they average them, and it comes up to a score between one and three. Yep. And so the, the higher the score on this thing, uh, in this case, ironically, the, the worse the emotional self-regulation of the child. And so a, a, a slightly higher score. You want to be low, much, like in golf. Like, yeah, you want to have a, a, like, like a, good, a good handicap here. And so what they found is that if, if you have children who sometimes or almost never or never have regular bedtimes, that their emotional cognitive self-regulation, their emotional self-regulation score was 2.1, whereas those who always have regular bedtimes, their cognitive, excuse me, their emotional self-regulation, you're getting my mind, Don, their emotional self-regulation scores <laughs> were 1.97. Your cognitive mind, not your emotional mind. And, and this difference between 1.97 and 2.1 Three was statistically significant. Yes. However, meaningless. We will we will make the pithy point that the difference between one point nine seven and two point one is rather small it's in absolute that, verb. That's yeah. I, I, I don't know that it's meaningless. I'm just saying it, it, what it's we don't know is small. what does it mean. That's less than one emotional unit. Right. It is. <laughs> and so, so the question is, what is an emotional self-regulation so unit? That is a point, good question. Point one and change was the absolute difference between the highest and the lowest. Yep. But it was significant. But it was significant because they, why? Because they had big numbers. They had a wicked big sample size. 10,000 10, subjects. You're going to find... Chris clearly grew up in the New England area. <laughs> so you would say that this study suffers from being overpowered? Well, I wouldn't say that it suffers from being overpowered, right? I think the 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 issue with p-values here, and this is uh, not no, my no, general... No, please, no, 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 no. I'm going to contain it. I'm going to contain right. it. But here the issue is when you have a big sample, the p-values start to become meaningless, and you have to look for what is the actual data telling what us. What is the magnitude of the effect? Right. Yeah. And as Chris points out, here the difference is quite small. And I don't want to imply that I know enough to say that that's meaningless, which I think I did say, and I didn't really mean it. We take it back. Um, you know, maybe point 0.1 difference means something, but to the average person, I think you would look at that and say, probably not much going on. Well, there. it totally doesn't line up with those headlines. I mean, that's the thing. Well, well, well like, hang on. Big, big, well, big wait, no, wait, 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 wait. So, so now you're talking about the relationship between cognitive and emotional scores and bedtimes cross-sectionally, meaning just 
we just looked at age three and we looked at whether they're related. Right. The headlines are related to table five. Oh, right. So do you want to take this one? This is the beauty. Findings. Right. This is the prospective stuff. So here's where we say, okay, let's look at these three different approaches to parenting, regular bedtimes, regular meal times, and uh, limiting t- t- television use. And then at age three, and we ask the parents about them at age three, and then we look forward in time and we try to determine whether or not those kids are obese. And we look at how much more likely or less likely or not likely, any like, not likely, to be obese as a child if you follow one of these routines. And they use uh, some statistical modeling to try and account for the fact that these different models, uh, these different uh, routines would be correlated. If you're more likely to have a regular bedtime, you're more likely to have a regular mealtime. So we put them all together into one model. We also think about other things that might explain this effect. And what they find here is uh, essentially that uh, if you have a, a regular, if your child has a regular bedtime at age three, they're about 2.3 times more likely to be obese times is a little bit more of a statement because they're using odds and not risk, which is the way we normally think of uh, our risk for things. Um, so you're more likely, about twice as likely to uh, have a, the child be obese at age 11 if they had uh, they sometimes or almost never or never had a regular bedtime compared to if they always did. But if you look at regular mealtimes, the direction is exactly the opposite. Mm. So if you have a regular mealtime, uh, sorry, if you sometimes almost never or never have a regular mealtime, you are less likely to have a child that is obese. Slightly. Slightly. Ever so slightly. Well, no, 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 no. I mean, the effect size is comparable to the, the, the increase that is, uh, is related to um, uh, regular be- bedtimes. They're just in the opposite direction. So, you know, one... So that's internally inconsistent is what you're saying. Well, I'm not saying it's internally inconsistent necessarily. I'm just saying it's interesting to me that, that they don't spend a lot... Of, well, I shouldn't fault the authors for this. The media spends no time focused on this. The authors spent a good amount of time talking about this is not what they expected to happen. But, um, and then if you look at television, they found nothing. Three or more hours of, of television, uh, what is that, daily? Yeah, three or more hours of television use a day compared to up to an hour a day made no difference. So the public health message is that you can watch as much TV as you want. If you believe, Six as you said, if you believe, as you said, that they are following a causal model here and there's nothing else that explains these findings. All right, Mr. Epidemiologist, I have a question. Okay. I have some serious problems with some of the other data that was presented that might confound or explain part of this. Ooh, confound, act. confound. Can um, you, what, do, what do you mean by confound? Uh, you're, gonna tell, you're gonna tell us what, what a criminal means. does when he's looking for some money. Confounds? Oh, jeez. Don't even know what that one means. I'm going to let that one go and just yeah, move that, on. We'll edit that one out. Confounds? Yeah, we'll, um, we'll take it out in post. So there's, there's two issues. One is that when you look at one of the tables where they break down the parent's education status. And if anyone's and, following home, along at home, which table? That would be table three. Yep. Table three. I like that um, one. And uh, by education status, by income quintile, and also by ethnicity. There's a tremendous gradient yeah. in terms of these characteristics, bedtime, mealtime, and TV watching, where, where the, um, the parents who are more educated or the parents who are in a higher income quintile um, have children that are associated with a better bedtime score and a better mealtime score and a better um, TV watching score. And were you surprised? And I was not. No, it's something that you would sort of expect. But to me, that is that, that should profoundly affect... The, the, uh, the, the outcome that, that we're observing. And the authors put that into their model. So they, in, in, in the, the model, they looked at those the statistical three, model. the statistical model, looked at those three covariates, and they, quote, unquote, controlled for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so my question to you, Bat, is that's a very common statistical approach. Yep. How good is it? So... The, the because I think that the, the, the effects that you see are really quite profound, mm. and that socioeconomic status or income level could easily explain these characteristics. And then I have a follow-up question. Once okay, but before before I answer the question, tell me why you're concerned. Why do you care? You know, they're, they're, they're looking at uh, television routines and and bedtime routines and its relation to obesity. So why do I care about all this other stuff about? You know the the socioeconomic status of these kids, uh, or of the parents, or 
you know, ethnicity or things like that? Why do I care? Because, because there, there are likely a ton of other characteristics that that distinguish those various categories. They're proxies for something else. Something there, there could be all sorts things. of things. It could be, you know, whether you um, have a healthy diet, whether you shop at a, at, a, at, a, at, a, at a local store that has, where you have access to good produce. It could be, what is your, you know, what is your exercise routine? You know, if you're at a higher socioeconomic yep. um, status, it could be that you, you, you're like all into marathons together or something, and that would be perhaps less likely. I, I, I'm gonna assume that three-year-olds aren't running Right. Ultra marathons, no, but fair enough. No, but it's the example that's set by the parents. So there's right. there's a whole world of, of possible other factors that are not bedtime, mealtime, right. or video watching that could explain part of this. And that's the key. That's the key. So the reason that, that we are concerned about these other factors is the confounding problem, meaning that we we can have a situation where there are other factors that are related to the thing we're interested in as the potential cause, in this case, you know, uh, regular mealtimes, regular bedtimes, that are correlated with those things that are also explanations of the outcome, in this case, obesity. So as you say, if, if, if uh, lower socioeconomic status is associated with uh, differences in uh, nutritional intake, that may explain the outcome, and you're going to observe that the regular mealtimes, regular bedtimes, whatever, are related to the outcome simply because the socioeconomic status is different in the kids who have regular mealtimes and don't, and then that's the real cause. And so your question was, how good are these models at dealing with this problem? And the answer is the models are, are very good at dealing with these problems with some caveats. And the caveats are the models uh, can only remove this confounding problem. And the idea of confounding is that if we don't account for it in some way, then we can't actually observe the true causal relationship between our bedtimes and, and obesity. Um, the models can only deal with it in the cases where A, you measured it, and B, you measured it well. Mm. So that, there are two different problems, is if there are factors that are not in here that they, the, the, the researchers didn't measure, then they can't remove those confounding effects. Right. If they did measure it, the models can remove those confounding effects if and only if those variables are measured well. Just like we were talking about before, that you can have this problem where you ask people about their uh, regular meal time, uh, regular bedtimes, and people know what the answer is supposed to be, so they give you the wrong answer. Then that that ability of the model to remove the confounding is reduced because you have this misclassification problem. So it works if and only if we've measured it, we measured it well. And when when we don't, we have leftover confounding. We have you know we have some mixing of any true effects, if there are any, with any biased effects that are caused, or, or, or not biased effects, but any bias that is caused by these other factors that you're concerned about, kids running ultramarathons. Yeah. So I, I'd like to add, add and emphasize uh, um, on, on Don's point, which, because I think, you know, this is, this is a really important point in, in epidemiology and in the statistical analysis where we're trying to adjust for confounding that this socioeconomic variables, the education of the family and the wealth of the family are themselves proxies for all sorts of things that, that distinguish different kinds of families and impose different kinds of risks. So it's not that it's like, you know, if you did a randomized trial and you gave people money and, and changed their, their, you know, their wealth, it would not necessarily remove all of these effects because it could also be that there is, um, you know, there are other things that are, are, are important that are just represented by that number. And it's also true that the predictive variable, the one that we're really focused on, which is these routines, the bedtime, the meal times, and the TV watching times, are themselves proxies for a whole range of things that are involved in parenting, which we're not capturing. Yep. I mean, all three of us are parents, mm -hmm. right? And so we think, like, you know, I think that bedtimes and meal times and TV limitations are important, as yep. I'm sure you all do. But no, that's like, that's not... That's not the whole thing about parenting, right? There's so much going on. There's like hundreds of behaviors behind those three behaviors that they measured. Right. That will probably be, will line up with, with these three. And yet, you know, the takeaway message from, you know, from the media is that all you need to do is change the kid's bedtime. Right. And suddenly you've dropped the risk of obesity at 11 by half. Right. And that is, that is preposterous. Yeah, we don't buy it. It's preposterous. You know, right. one thing that I'd like to see that included in here, which I think would be um, a really important factor, is what is the BMI of the parents? 
Right. It's it's you know, really the, the interesting. The whole don't. genetic aspect of it is is just omitted. They do get birth weight in here into these models. So oh, they have the birth weight that, of the child. It's meaningless. Self-reported as and they don't have that whether they didn't do a measurement on the child at age three to be able to uh, adjust for the, the baseline mm-hmm. uh, value. So I agree with you. I think that's a problem. I, I Chris, I think I think you 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 raised the important point, which is uh, there is you know a. a uh, believability kind of thing that goes on when you read these things to say, okay, let's say, let's say I, I, I believe these results in the, in the general sense. I think generally they did a good job and I think they were getting at <coughs> real effects. Um, does the size of the effect that they, they measured make any intuitive sense? So is it really the case? Do I really believe that if I just institute regular uh, bedtimes for my kids at age three, I can cut their risk of obesity in half. Yeah, I don't buy it. And that seems, that seems large. But I think there's another problem here, which is that, um, and this isn't, as I said, this isn't the author's uh, issue so much as this is uh, just a general consistency issue and something that the media picked up on, is the media focused on the, the, what I'll call the positive finding, the thing that people want to know about, which is how do I reduce my kid's risk of obesity? The media does nothing to pick up the, the other side of the story, which is to say that it, it appears, if you believe this, data that uh, instituting a regular mealtime for your kids will increase their risk for making them obese, which, Mm -hmm. you know, doesn't necessarily seem uh, intuitive. There could be explanations for it, right? It could be that setting regular mealtimes puts an emphasis on on eating and consumption. So you could come up with all kinds of stories where it does make sense. But if you accept one, you have to accept the other. And as you say, then there's also the TV thing. So the message is watch as much TV as you want. Because that clearly has no effect. Which well, seems, also seems preposterous. It seems a little preposterous, <laughs> but it also seems like you know we certainly wouldn't want to spread that message. Because the other thing we want to think about is, even if you buy this result, TV has other impacts on other things that you you know. So you don't make decisions based on the results of, of one the effect of one thing on one other thing. Anyway, so we can, I think we can. Uh, so do we like a, a Siskel and Ebert thumbs up, thumbs down at this point? I mean, where where do we stand on this? Well, like, give me your give me your give me your takeaway. Uh, I mean, I, I think uh, I think um, you know generally I believe that the relationships they they've they've defined are probably true. I think the magnitude of the effect is is completely misleading. And I think the implications of, of what they have found, if like turned into a, a set of guidelines by the you know pediatric societies. Uh, are are going to be uh, in some sense a wasted effort. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's, it's they've, they're way ahead of their skis on this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, I would agree. Um, I, I like the fact that it is consistent with the rest of the, the literature, and it is an attempt to look at this issue more rigorously because it's a prospective study. But I think, you know, during the course of of our conversation, we've identified quite a number of of faults. I think it would be a really difficult study to do because I think what you need to do is you need to. Um, have somebody in the household making observations about these things on a on a regular basis throughout the period of time until you uh, measure your outcome and um, controlling for all of the thing the other things that we talked about I think would be would be really really difficult so yeah. I you know I I don't really buy this but I don't think it disproves the, it's like like if if we're if someone were to do a randomized control trial over ten years yep. of randomizing people to regular bedtimes or not. My guess is that they would find almost no effect. But that's not a doable study. It's not a doable study, but that that would be my guess. That it's not really the bedtimes per se. It is that those hundreds of parenting behaviors that are represented by by the bedtimes, and the bedtime is just a proxy. Yeah, there's 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 a lot going on here, and I and I agree with you. I I, I'm not ready to to declare any of these uh, to be causal links. I I think what I would say is, and I think I'll probably say this about every study, uh, short of the ones that I think just need to be totally discarded. What's that? The ones you wrote. Uh oh, no, those need to be discarded. Those definitely need to be started. More research is needed. More research is needed. Which is, I, I, which is job security for us, Exactly, right? and that's why we say it. We are, we, I'm a tattooed on my, on my right shoulder. Right. Uh, you know, that we, I, I would want to see more before I'd want, to, I'd want to say that, you know, we should be able to go out and recommend these things. None of them seem in any way to be bad things to want to recommend. It's just that, you know, not, I'd want to know before I, I recommended regular mealtimes that, in fact, it was not harmful uh, to kids in terms of obesity. All right, moving on to our, our next segment. So now that we've, uh, we've drawn our conclusions on that study, I wanted to go into more detail on something that came up in the, in the first segment, which is I want to th- talk a little bit about how we, as consumers of the, of the medical and public health literature, actually go about critically reading a journal article and what, what is it that we're looking for and how do we ultimately decide whether or not we 
believe something is a credible finding or how do we decide if it needs to go into the, the trash bin. So, uh, Chris, I want to start with you. So, so give us, give us your, your take on how you, when you pick up a, a, an article or a new study comes out, uh, how do you critically go through it and what's your, what's your general strategy? What are you looking for? Mm-hmm. Okay, sure. So this, this is going to come off as very cynical. But um, uh, you <laughs> no no uh, but uh, no truthfully, um, I mean the 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 you know the sort of the central tenet of science is that you're you're supposed to be you know critically trying to disprove things as hard as you can. Um, you're trying to be as skeptical as you possibly can. So your your default position is is always my default position. But I think it should be for all of us. The default position should always be I don't believe it. Prove it to convince me. me. Prove me. Convince me. Yeah. Convince me. And then if I'm convinced, you know, then I'll sort of back off and say, okay, now I generally believe it. Now do I believe to the extent that they have claimed? You know, and where are, where are the opportunities here not to be, like, completely dead wrong, which was the, the first point, but where, where, like, we are slightly misled. This is where it gets into that confounding and, and bias issue that you were emphasizing. So I think that's my starting point is I always sort of say my, my default is I don't believe it. Prove it to me. Mm-hmm. And what... what and- how do you deal with the fact that we know that all studies, particularly observational studies, by which I mean studies where we don't intervene, we just watch what people do, we try and draw conclusions because of that uh, annoying fact that human beings have free will and get to decide for themselves what they want to do, and that leads to all these confounding problems. How do you how do you account for that when you're reading? Because you know every study is going to have some problems. How do you set the, the threshold for when you say... No, I'm not buying it. Yeah, yeah, that's a really, that's a really, I mean, I don't know it's if I have a... question that I don't want anyone to ask me. That's why I'm asking you. <laughs> I, I think it's a shifting, I think it's a shifting margin. I mean, it, it, it you know, there was, um, it's our, our God, uh, our God, John Ionides, uh, is always saying that, like, you know... If he's listening, that if was he's Chris listening, there. We really, we really like your, your stuff, John. Um, but um, he, he's always saying, like, extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof, except I think it was Carl Sagan who said that first. But um, You like John just because he's as, almost as cynical as you are. He is. And it, it, it's, uh, you know, it, it, it is basically saying that, in like, if someone comes out with some very surprising, counterintuitive, you know, finding asparagus prevents brain cancer. You're like, oh my God, I did not know that I am going to go buy some asparagus now and I'm going to eat it every single day because I definitely do not want brain cancer. You might also say, what? That sounds like nuts. What is the possibility that that's just not true? And the, the, like, the crazier it sounds, the more likely it's to be wrong. Yep. And it yep. seems like, yeah, that, that's obviously true. You know, when someone says, I want to sell you a bridge for 50 bucks. This is the epidemiological equivalent of asparagus and brain cancer. I mean, it's like, why do we lose our skepticism when it comes to science? Do we suddenly like, oh my God, it's got to be true. It's in this journal that I never heard of before, but it's got to be true. Okay, I mean, and, and if instead of asparagus it was ice cream, would you be more likely to believe it because you like ice cream? I love ice cream. So you're like, gonna... if, if they said ice cream improves like quality of life, I'd be like, that's that got to be a good study. Got to be true. That's because you're, <laughs> you're completely unbiased, right, Chris? Right. No, of course, right. I, of course, I, I, I'm actually joking here, but I'm joking intentionally because I think that this is actually. Part of what goes on with the media, and I know this is not a, a segment riffing on the media, but I think that's what happens is the media picks up on things that people want to believe are true. Right. And as you say, that's the exact opposite of what we should be doing is, is looking at the things that are the, the more extraordinary things. We should be looking at the things that, that sort of – I don't want to say we only want to look at things that, 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 that are logical because then we're going to miss the extraordinary thing when it comes along. But the extraordinary things are far less likely to be true because if they are truly extraordinary and impactful – those are often things that we just, you know, we, we, we're, we're quick to observe because you don't need a huge study. Smoking and lung cancer, why did we, you know, why is that our big claim to fame? It's because the effects are huge. And so you, you start to notice the patterns in, in just clinical practice rather than having to, to, to start up with a big study. I think that's a, that's a really important. I think it's really important when reading um, articles like this to put it in context, to put it in sort of the, 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 the environment in which the study was done. What are the other studies that um, led up to that, what are the other studies that are confirmatory about that? And I think that that's a real problem because as the three of us know, and uh, um, uh, perhaps a number of our, uh, of our audience know, there's this concept of publication bias. Mm. So, Can you say what publication bias is? Yeah, so, so uh, the journals tend to publish findings that are splashy, are positive, um, because it makes, it, it makes better reading, they're more popular, they make more money. Um, and they don't tend to publish the negative studies. So there is this bias in the literature that the findings that are positive are the ones that really become the prevailing truth 
when in fact there's a lot of unpublished negative studies that would counterbalance those positive studies. So you really have to take that, you know, take, t take it into, into consideration and look at the whole landscape of scientific findings. And I would, I would add to that, uh, journals also like to publish things that ha are, have statistically significant findings by which I mean, they use the statistical measure of the p-value. If the p-value is uh -oh, here we go again. below 0.0, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, I, it's like a, a just, I can't avoid bringing it up. Uh, and there's all kinds of problems with p-values, and we will at some point dedicate a whole segment to it. But if you, if you have a system that's set up to only publish the significant findings, as you say, you miss the ones where, uh, you know, you miss the, the 10 studies that find that ice cream doesn't prevent Whatever it was, brain you, cancer, brain cancer, quality of life, and you you just you just pick out the one in one in twenty, let's say that right. that did find it, and you just ignore the rest because it doesn't get published because we select four studies that are statistically significant. So, I have, a, I have a whole I have a whole uh, diatribe I'm going to do on that. But I, I want to go back to a point you raised on, which is that that you said you're you're looking for how does this fit into the body of literature, and I would say um, I agree with you. So that's sort of as you reading through the introduction is supposed to guide me towards. What do we already know about this topic? Where does this fit in? And then in the discussion, you know, we sort of specifically say, where does my study fit in? And I think that's really important because there, there's different ways of going about research. Some is that we come up with a, a hypothesis and we do some kind of a study to, to, to test it. In others, we just have, have data available to us and we come up with an idea and we test it or we just look at data and see what's associated. And, and a lot of people are heavily critical of the last one there. I think there are actually probably, we're probably overly critical of it, um, but it has, there's good reasons to be critical of it. But to me, the, the key thing that I'm looking for in the beginning of, of a paper is I'm looking for a question. Mm -hmm. Too often I read papers that there was no question. Nobody set out to answer a question. We just had some data available to us, and so we looked for associations. And sometimes that's fine because sometimes associations that you find correlate with meaningful things and other cases they don't correlate to anything they they're just sort of you know correlations that that are interesting but correspond even if even if you wait you know get rid of all the problems with misclassification and confounding and all those things they don't correspond to anything in the real world so um an example i often use with my students is there's uh, uh studies that that look at um whether or not uh prenatal uh surgery for um to repair uh, for kids uh, who have a form of spina bifida, whether prenatal surgery to, to, to uh, repair the problem is better than postnatal surgery. And what they do is they, they, you have observational data, meaning no intervention. We just look at patients who got the prenatal and patients who got the postnatal, and we compare them, and we find one's better than the other. And even if you have no, none of the other problems, none of the bias problems, that doesn't correspond to anything in the real world because, by definition, the kids who survived to birth to be able to have postnatal surgery are different from kids who got prenatal surgery. Right. And you've excluded all the kids in the other group mm -hmm. who right. would have died had they not gotten yeah. the prenatal surgery. It doesn't, course, it doesn't tell us anything about what we should do. And that's ultimately, to me, what the goal here is to figure out what do we do? How do we improve the health of populations? And that, so that's, to me, that's the first thing I'm looking for is, was there a question and is it a question worth answering? And I think the rubric for that is if you t torture the data long enough, it will admit to anything. It will admit to anything. Just let it speak, Don. Just let it speak. Yeah, although there were many, who's, <laughs> but, many, many who say the data cannot speak for themselves, <laughs> that it is impossible, and therefore you must speak for the data in some way. But we, we, can, uh, we can come back to that one later. So to summarize, I, I think w what I would say here is that when we look at the literature, we're, we're trying to read it with a critical eye to figure out you know, what is it what is it they're trying to answer? What did they do and how did they do it? And then where does it fit into the, the bigger picture of what we already know about this topic? And do the findings make sense? And there's ways that we go about thinking about that. Critically, we think about sources of bias, which we don't have a lot of time to go into and we'll do another time. But, uh, and we use all that information to try and draw reasonable conclusions. And I will just say for my own, uh, I, I often end with the uh, need more research conclusion. Because I often think it's, you know, we don't want to draw conclusions, sweeping conclusions based on the results of a single study. Okay, so moving on, we're going to move on to our, now to our, our third segment, which is, of course, our, our most fun segment, our amazing and amusing segment. We want to highlight some things that made us enjoy our jobs even more than we already do. We'll look at the 
weird and wacky things that happen in our field or the fields that surround us, as well as those things that inspire us. What do you got? All right. Um, I have a paper um, that uh, was published by C.M. Vinky, L.M. Gojin, and uh, W. Vanderlei. Apologies on the pronunciations. Yes, please. I apologize for the I'm macerating the pronunciations. From the University of Utrecht which was published in Applied Animal Behavior Science, and the title of this article is, Will a Hiding Box Provide Stress Reduction for Sheltered Cats? A hiding box. A hiding box, yes. Sheltered cats. And so, in, in essence, what they did was they were looking for an intervention that would minimize the stress associated with stray cats that are brought into a shelter. And they uh, uh, did a randomized control trial. It wasn't very large, right. but it was 10 cats in one arm, nine cats in the other arm. and Randomly it, allocated the uh, arms. Randomly allocated the arms. I assume each one of those cats signed a consent form. No, I don't think so. Okay. I think they probably just, just gave checking. a paw print. They didn't actually sign <laughs> just it. Just checking. Yeah. Um, and so what they did is that when they brought these cats into the shelter, the intervention arm, they gave the cat a box. Just a brown cardboard box. I'm in. I'm in. Because cats could, love boxes. Because yeah. cats, I, I didn't know this. And cats this is something, I'm not, oh, I'm not, not a, cat, a cat, person. cat person. No, I'm not a cat person, so I didn't know this. So yeah. I learned a tremendous amount. They gave the cats a box. And then what they did is they did an evaluation of the stress level of the cat. And they used something called a cat stress score, oh, which yeah. I had never heard of Oh, no, no, before. no. We, we, we you use know that all the time at home. Yep. Yeah. So yep. it, it, has, it has seven different categories going from fully relaxed Weakly relaxed, weakly tense, very tense, fearful, stiff. Very thorough. Very fearful and terrified. <laughs> and I was, I, I just, you, I love, know, I love this cat. How do you know if a cat is terrified? Well, it, it's crouched directly on top of all fours. It's shaking. It's motionless. It has a plaintive wow. meow and is plaintive. yowling, growling, or quiet. Okay, I didn't know its that. Its whiskers are back. The ears are fully flattened on the back of the head. The eyes are... Fully dilated. Um, so there's a whole series of characteristics. There's All body, right. stomach, legs, tail, head, eyes, pupils, ears, whiskers, vocal. They were thorough. They were thorough. It. Okay, but what did they find? And they found that a box given to cats markedly decreases the level of stress as indicated by this cat stress score. So the really the take-home message is that if you think that your cat is being stressed at any point, you give it a box or you can give it a brown paper bag from the grocery store. Oh, like this, or apparently you can take masking tape and you can you can put oh, I tried a, that it did not work. You, you can <laughs> make, a, make a square on the floor and the cat will sit in that square and feel less stressed. And feel less stressed. Unfortunately, I tried that at home with my cat because I heard about the study too and I, I I actually taped a square on the floor and the cat looked at it and walked away. Maybe but my cat, cat is very relaxed. It wasn't stressed. My cat is very relaxed. That's anecdotal. Do we know? <laughs> no, I, 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 I hate one, to... one, one more thing. If you put the box up high, the cat gets de-stressed much more quickly. Well, no, I mean, obviously. That, that I mean, makes obviously. Total, I didn't know that. That's, I mean, everybody knows. Because it's like a den. High boxes are, are way like, better for... God, it's like, I'm do just we know? so feline ignorant, I gotta say. Do, do we know if this works for people? We don't, but that's a great idea. I think, uh, I that's our next NIH grant. Okay. <laughs> I love okay. it. It would have to be an awfully large box. I, the thing is, right. the funny Cats. thing about this is that I, t I actually totally believe this study, whereas <laughs> I'm rather skeptical <laughs> about the... <laughs> The obesity study. Even though there's only 10, <laughs> That's 10 total cats, bias. 10 I totally cats. believe it because, it, cats and you're because in. It's, a, it's a predator. It's an animal that lives in the wild. Of course, they want to have like a den where they can be safe so, from enemies. It totally makes sense. You just invalidated everything you said you about being cynical and stuff wanting to be disproven. <sighs> well, all right. Oh, okay, Dorothea, right. cats in boxes. Cats in boxes. So, Chris I, Gill, I, what do you got? I've got a, I've got platypus venom. Um, well, and and don't why, we all? why this is, yeah, I don't personally, because platypus venom, did you know that male platypuses there's nothing have about venom? A, there's nothing, because of the name, there's nothing about a platypus that's not funny. That is true. That's true. That's well, true. male platypuses is only platypuses. Um, no, 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 because it's Greek. So it is not a, the, the plural of puss Platyp is pusses in Greek. Whereas if this was Latin, it would be platypi. How do you but know it's this? Greek. It's the same with octopus. The plural of octopus is octopuses. How do you know this? It's not octopi. It is. It's not. It's octopuses. Everybody thinks it's octopi. No, it's wrong. The majority uh, rules octopus, on this one. Octopi. Puss is a Greek 
Root. Okay. <laughs> Pode right, is the Latin. On. Anyway, that is not your study. Go ahead. <laughs> anyway. Um, Matt, is, uh, Matt is laughing. You don't hear anything, but he's laughing. <laughs> so platypus, male platypuses have uh, spurs on their hind legs, which inject a powerful venom. And the one of the leading components, the venom, is amino acids that are are right in antimers. They're they're right handed in antimers. Antimers. So in, in for those What's of you an who, and in, and it's got nothing to do with anteaters. It has to do with stereochemistry, and that has nothing to do with rock and roll. Okay. This has got to be the most esoteric topic out of college chemistry that We're you can possibly talk about. We're going somewhere. If you do your you know you're making a, like a a a X Y Z axis with your fingers. Um, and your left and right hands, you can see that they are mirror images of each other. Your hands are mirror images of each other. And molecules in nature come in left and right-handed versions of each other. Okay. And so all animals, all mammals, not animals, but all mammals, their amino acids, which are the, the, the building blocks of all proteins, are left-handed amino acids. They are all left-handed amino acids. Platypus venom is filled with a, a concoction of right-handed amino acids, which means that they are the mirror images of like, it's like the, the L-alanine and the R-alanine. Now, the reason this stuff is so poisonous is because all of your cells are constantly making proteins, and you throw in a bunch of right-handed amino acids, and the, all of a sudden the, 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 the physical structure of the protein is, is messed up because it can't bind. It's because all faulty the, bricks in the construction. Exactly. Okay. All the Legos, of like the, the, the heads are pointed in the wrong direction, <laughs> and they won't stack. And so it's like a universal toxin that will attack almost any mammalian process. It's really kind of fascinating. And the reason I thought that this was interesting is because this is, this is how we structure most of our HIV drugs, the whole nu uh. the, the nucleotide reverse transcriptase inhibitors, our whole class of, of molecular mimics whose stereochemistry has been tweaked slightly so that when they're incorporated into, into, into the, 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 the growing cDNA strand of an HIV virus, they, they grab like a, an azidothymidine instead of a thymidine, right, and stick it in there, and it doesn't fit because the stereochemistry has been altered. Wow. And really the platypus is doing exactly the same thing. It's, it's just injecting a whole bunch of decoy ducts into its host that is going to mess up all of its protein synthesis. And I just thought that that was a fascinating wow. analog to our whole first range of HIV drugs, which are the, the, the you know, yeah. AZT and DDI and DDC and D4T and 3TC and FTC and, and tenofovir. They're all all work on exactly the same principle. Wait a second. I thought we were supposed to be talking about articles. That's not an article. You're no, just, you're just riffing on, on a fun thing. Of nature. We're allowed to include that? I'm going to allow it. Yep. Thank I'm going to allow oh, wow. it. Thank All you, right. Matt. So it's Sorry, wide Matt. open now. So Chris Gill and platypi. Platypuses. Whatever. <laughs> Whatever. All right. I grabbed a study from the British Medical Journal's Christmas edition. You oh, all know about the it. Christmas edition. Love it. So for those of you who don't know, the Christmas edition of the British Medical Journal publishes uh, amusing articles that people have done. And I particularly like this one, both because uh, it involved a, a co-author from my department here in the Department of Epidemiology, but also because uh, who it is does Jennifer, Jennifer Ryder. But also because it goes back to the topic that I love to always come back to, which is p-values, except that in this case... Uh, P is spelled P-E-E. -E. So the title of the article is Sniffing Out Significant P-Values, Genome-Wide Association Study of Asparagus, and I don't know how to pronounce this word. Anosmia. Anosmia. Mm -hmm. Okay, yep. tell me what anosmia you is. You can't smell. You can't smell. You can't smell. You can't smell. Your nose doesn't work. Okay, so this goes to the, um, the issue that uh, apparently some people, when they consume asparagus, notice that afterwards... Their pee smells funny. Who doesn't? Who doesn't? Okay, I, I'm not going to name names, but I have asked around and I have met some people who do not smell it. Seriously. You yeah. know that oh. in, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez's book, uh, Love in the Time of Cholera, he talks about this constantly. The, the smell of the smell they, of urine after you They have some references. They have some great of, references to right. some historical uh, takes on the on the smell that asparagus. All the way back to the Greeks, right? Comparts to, well, I believe it's uh, it's called asparagus. This is. Yes, he's right. It's in the way. Greek. <laughs> That's right. So, <laughs> So what they did, so what they did was, and I want to love this, this is actually a, a serious study, although I, I've been assured that your taxpayer dollars were not used to, to fund it because it was, uh, it was done with data that was already available, and they were just, uh, they were just using it uh, to, to answer this question, because the, apparently the authors uh, noticed that some people could not smell the smell, while others noticed that it's a very pungent odor. And so they uh, had reason to believe that um, there may, in fact, be a genetic reason for this. And the question is actually an interesting one. The question is, 
does the person not make the particular compound that has the smell, or are they not able to smell it? That's, I mean, easy, that's easy enough to figure out. Just smell other people's pee. Well, you could, you could, you. So they actually talk about that. They, they, there were some prior studies in which they had somebody else's pee uh-huh. being smelled. Yeah, uh-huh. uh, I. Again, I'd like to see the consent form for that study, <laughs> but anyway. Uh, and so what they did was they they had these genetic uh, sequences on these people, and they had information about whether or not they they had this particular anosmia. 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 That's a thing uh-huh. that you guys in the yeah. medical world talk right. about. Because sometimes if you get hit in the head, you develop anosmia. 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 And what they found was, in fact, they were uh, genetic. Uh, what do you call them? Anosmics. No, no, genetic uh, loci, genetic loci. alleles, foci, yeah, alleles yeah. whatever it is, that were uh, very, very highly significantly associated with uh, not being able to smell this, suggesting that in fact the issue is uh, that it is genetic, and that the issue is that you can't smell it, not that you can't produce it. Right. If I got it. I so, so, are, so right. is, isn't it in fact the case that there aren't two populations? It's just the one is the inability to smellers? Inability, inability as opposed to, smell. to lacking the enzymes right. to secrete whatever it? the compound is. But it's there. not an inabil- inability to smell. It's an inability to, uh, to smell no, 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 asparagus right. and pee. Smell specifically so the question is, what else can't they smell pee. and pee? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Broccoli? I, I think this is really fascinating because it, it raises a whole I'm host sure of questions. Because people it? also hate cilantro. Well, oh, like I right hate there. cilantro. Right I there. love cilantro oh, God, and I celery. And people, oh, what? Oh, I love celery. People say it tastes bitter, and it's like, no, it tastes sweet. What I've never heard about? about celery, but I've definitely heard from Don many times many that times. cilantro tastes yeah. like yeah. metal. No, it tastes like dishwashing soap. Dishwashing really? soap. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow, I just yeah. find it has this, this, this lovely sort of lemony flavor. In fact, flavor. There's, a, there's a cilantro haters group on the on the internet. There is? Yeah, there's uh, a blog. Okay, so we'll tweet out the handle to that. Yeah. Okay. All right. Sorry, cilantro people. That's the end of our program. Uh, if you have any feedback, you can reach us on the Population Health Exchange website. Uh, you can reach us there and give us any feedback you have on this particular show, on the article that we talked about, or uh, any topics that you'd like us to, to potentially take on in the future. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it, and we hope that you will download the next episode. Cheers. Thanks. Cheers.